0: This morning we are continuing our way through chapter 5 of Ephesians, as we've worked our way all year through the book of Ephesians. So let me just recap the first couple of sections of chapter 5 that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. First we looked at Ephesians 5, 1 to 6, where Paul listed out all of these works of darkness that should not characterize the body of Christ. Sexual immorality covetousness, greed. Then last week, we looked at verses 7 through 14, where Paul taught that Christians are people of the light and that they should expose the darkness. And he talks about the fruit of the light. And that fruit is righteousness and truthfulness and goodness. And Paul reminded us in that passage last week that we all, as followers of Jesus, walk in the light so that other people can see the love of Christ within us. So today, the the contrast between light and dark is gone, and now we have a contrast between wise and unwise living. And before we begin, let's define biblically what wisdom is. Wisdom is not the world's understanding of wisdom. Let me allow Paul to illustrate this for us. He says this, In another one of his letters, 1 Corinthians 2, he says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He then says in 1 Corinthians 3, Let no one deceive himself. If any one of you thinks he is wise in this age, he should become a fool. So that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So I use these passages to give you a framework to understand what Paul means when he talks about wisdom. He's not talking about the world's understanding of wisdom. He's talking about a biblical understanding of wisdom. So as we unpack what it means to live as wise and unwise today, we're going to focus primarily on two points. That's right, two, not three. Live wisely, not foolishly. And then number two, be full in the Spirit, not full of wine. Number one, live wisely, not foolishly. And then number two, be full in the spirit, not full of wine. Paul challenges his readers to look carefully how they are living their lives. As we've worked our way through Ephesians, you have picked up on this theme. Paul cares a lot about the way those that claim to be followers of Christ live. He cares about holiness. God cares about holiness Paul cares about holiness. Jesus cared about holiness. Therefore, we, as his followers, should care about holiness. We always have to regularly assess our lives. Paul is saying that we should examine our lives and see how we're doing. This is where regular confession of sin and repentance is vital. We have to spend time reflecting in our minds, in our hearts, how we are doing before the Lord and keeping His commandments. And as we've worked our way through reading the Bible this year together as a church, if in fact you're doing that with us, as you read the whole counsel of God, something happens. You become aware how much of a sinner you are. And at the same time, you also realize that all of the people in Scripture that God used were also massively Wicked, evil, sinful people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, not to mention Peter, Thomas, James, John. None of them are ever characterized in Scripture as perfect. They're flawed and they're sinners. So as we read Scripture, yes, we realize our lack of holiness. But we also realize that God chooses to work through people like you and me. To accomplish his purposes. Paul tells us in another one of his letters. 2 Timothy chapter 3. He talks about all the the roles that scripture has. He says all scripture is breathed out. And profitable. For rebuking. And correcting. And training. And teaching in righteousness. So one of the functions of God's word. Is to convict you. Is to bring reproof in your life. So. If we come across a brother or sister that is unrepentant in their life, I would venture to guess that they're probably not consistently reading God's word. Because when we read God's word, one of its functions is that it exposes our sinfulness. And it calls us to repentance. So why should we do this? Why should we examine our lives? Paul gives us the answer. He says, because the days... Are evil. The Bible does not teach nor indicate in any way, shape, or form that any human being is neutral towards God. There is no neutrality. We know this from Ephesians 2 earlier when we studied it. You're either in bondage to your sin or you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Those are the only two hot options. There is no neutrality when it comes to one's relationship with the Lord. Now, by nature, I'm a fairly optimistic person. I don't get discouraged or down that often. So I don't want to paint a bleak picture of what Paul is saying here. But you do need to realize the days are evil. Why are they evil? Because there's more people in the world that are living in their trespasses and sins than there are those that will be seated with Christ in the heavenly places one day. That means that the world is more consumed with sinners than those that have been saved by the finished work of Christ. So yes, the days are evil as they've always been because there are more people living enslaved to sin than are living according to the pattern of Christ. Because the days are evil, Paul says, we should make the best use of the time that we have. Now Paul is picking up really on the word for redemption here. Making the best use of the time. Redeeming our time. If you're in Christ today, you're in a daily battle to fight for the time that you've been given. You have to redeem the time. Make the most of every single day that God has given you. This is not going to turn into some motivational speech. But biblically speaking, you should redeem the time that God has given you. Did you know that Satan wants nothing more than for you to just simply be distracted? He's not even necessarily trying to woo you into some horrendous evil lifestyle. He just wants you to be not focused on Christ and his kingdom. I can demonstrate this for you in C.S. Lewis's great book, The Screwtape Letters, where the uncle demon is writing to his nephew demon about ways to persuade Christians. Basically, to leave the faith or to be distracted. And here is what happens in one of those encounters between Wormwood and the demon screw tape. He says this, You no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversations he enjoys with people, whom he likes but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him you can make him do nothing at all for long periods of time you can keep him up late at night staring at a dead fire in a cold room but do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy that's talking about God It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. What is Screwtape telling Wormwood here? He's basically telling him, just distract the man who wants to follow Jesus. I don't think any of us are not aware that we live in an age of ultimate distraction. You can be distracted by things that literally harm no one, except they harm your time with the Lord. Wordle, Quirtle, Hurdle, Birdle. There's a new Durl every day, okay? I've even found one that's Bible verses. You can guess Bible verses. So there's Wordle, there's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's golf, there's all of these great things that because we live in this technological age, God has blessed us with. And if we're not careful... Our minds can drift away from the few moments that we have to ourselves and we'll spend it swiping through our phone rather than spending time in the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying you can't have fun. I'm not saying you can't do Wordle. I do it every morning. But let's not allow the things of this world to distract us ultimately from the kingdom of God And our proclamation that he has given to us to go and make disciples of all nations. Paul says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We talked about this last week. Talked about how there's different aspects to God's will. Talked about the secretive will of God. That is, there are certain things that God does not reveal to us. However, he has revealed to us his revealed word, which is the 66 books in this book. We understand the revealed will of God when we study the word of God. That's why we're reading God's word together this year. Because if anyone wants to ask, what is God's will for my life, open up God's word, and he will reveal to you as best as he can all of his revealed will. So as followers of Jesus, foolishness as a Christian would be to ignore the will of the Lord that he has revealed to us in this book. So we want to live wisely, not foolishly. But number two, we want to be full in the Spirit and not full of wine. Now let's look very closely here at this passage. What is Paul teaching In verse 18, because everyone's starting to squirm. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's a very important aspect that is brought to light in this passage. And that is the concept of the Christian's conscience. And if you went through the book study that I taught on this, I guess last spring, we, we read a book called Conscience, what it is, uh, how to train it, and loving those who differ. Let me define for you biblically what the conscience is because I don't want there to be any confusion. Your conscience is not the little person that sits on your shoulder telling you to do it or not do it. That's not real. That doesn't exist. Your conscience is also not the Holy Spirit. Your conscience is your individual. Moral consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So let me clarify here. The Holy Spirit is in every believer. We're talking about a person's individual conscience, which often manifests itself in passages of Scripture that don't explicitly state when something is right and something is wrong. So for instance, if you were to come to me and say, my conscience is telling me to murder someone, I would say, no it isn't, you're a liar. Because God's word has explicitly said, do not murder. Or if you come to me and say, my conscience has told me that uh, I should lie about this or that, I would say, no, your conscience is not telling you that. Because God's word has explicitly communicated, do not lie in Exodus chapter 20. So what do we mean when we say matters of conscience or what Paul would describe as disputable matters? Those are those things that Scripture does not explicitly say are right or wrong. You tracking with me? So every one of you in this room right now, you have a conscience. Now, let's unpack what Paul is teaching here. Number one, Paul is teaching... Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, there are two groups of people, probably at least two groups of people in this room. Those whose conscience has told them no matter what, they will not partake of alcohol, they are abstaining. That is their decision, most likely. Their conscience is informing their decision on that matter. And that is a good thing. God has given us a conscience, and we should follow that conscience. He's given it to us. It is a gift that he has given us. There's also those in this room, though, that have a conscience, and God is telling them, yes, you cannot get drunk, because Scripture has explicitly said that, but there is freedom in Christ to drink, Because your conscience does not allow you to, or doesn't want you, or you don't feel like you need to abstain from alcohol. Okay? So, keep going with me here. Which group is right? The group that completely abstains, or the group that does not get drunk, but likes to have alcohol from time to time? The answer is, both groups are right. Those that choose to abstain because their conscience is telling them not to, should obey their conscience. Those that do not have that leading, as long as they are not drunk on wine, are also not wrong. Here's what we don't want to happen. We don't want the first group that we'll just call, for simple purposes, the anti-alcohol group. We don't want them to impose their conscience on every other believer in the entire world. That would be extra That would be something that Scripture doesn't explicitly say that we can do. On the other hand, we don't want the pro-alcohol group to look down or judge those that choose to abstain and they flaunt around saying, well, I have freedom in Christ to drink. Come on, you can do it. Everyone can do it as long as you don't get drunk. That would also be irresponsible and immature. Now, alcohol is just one so-called disputable matter. You could name any number of others, homeschool, private school, public school. Do you listen to secular music? Do you only listen to Christian music all of the time? Do you watch television? Do you not watch television? There are so many things in our everyday life that Scripture doesn't explicitly say, don't do this or do this. So on those what I would call gray issues where the Scripture is not explicitly clear We listen to the conscience that God has given us. Now, I can't go into great detail about the book. I would encourage you to read it. But there are times when our consciences actually need to be calibrated closer to the Word of God. There might be times where at one time in your life, you felt like this was okay. But as you grew in holiness, as you grew in God's Word, your conscience was calibrated. And you might change your position on a particular issue. So let me just say this write these down there's eight questions that you should consider when dealing with what we call matters of conscience or disputable matters number 1 am i fully persuaded that this is right if you're not fully persuaded that it's right i would hold off whatever it might be number 2 can i do it as unto the lord Number three, can I do it without being a stumbling block to my brother or sister in Christ? And by the way, Paul addresses this in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians, I think it's 9 and 10, if you want to read more about this, when he's talking about food that has been sacrificed to idols. And how there were some that were just, no way I can ever do this. And then there were other believers in Christ who knew that idols are fake and they're not real and they didn't care if they ate food that was sacrificed to idols because idols didn't mean anything to them. They already knew there was one true God. So there is evidence of this type of issue in the text. Number four, does it bring peace? Number five, does it edify my brothers and sisters in Christ? Number six, Is it profitable? Number seven, does it enslave me? There are matters of conscience that Scripture might not explicitly say you can't do it. But if you're enslaved to it, if you have to have it, you need to stop. Like for me, the ten Oreos a night, I had to give it up. I was enslaved to sugar. Number eight, does it bring glory to God? Those eight questions, you should at least consider before you make this adamant, bold, staunch declaration about Scripture doesn't tell me explicitly that I can't do it, so I'm going to flaunt it because I have freedom in Christ. That's called being immature. Someone who abstains from alcohol because their conscience is leading them to do so is not a Pharisee. On the other hand... Somebody who chooses to partake of wine responsibly according to the biblical example that we have is also not automatically an alcoholic. So we have reasons in Scripture to not just flaunt the freedom in Christ that we have nor to judge those whose conscience doesn't lead them to the same conclusion that we have. But Paul is very clear in this passage that being drunk on wine leads to debauchery, which means it prevents one from having control. It leads to poor decisions, and ultimately it leads most likely into further sin. So no matter what the culture around us might deem as acceptable, cool, or funny, drunkenness, according to the Bible, is always a sin. Always a sin, both in the Old and the New Testament. That is the teaching of Scripture. So when I'm in Tuscaloosa for random sporting events and I see students or adults that range in age from 18 to 100 stumbling around campus, I'm not amused. I'm heartbroken because I see somebody who doesn't understand what the Bible is teaching about how to pertain or use alcohol in a responsible way. It doesn't matter if you're 21, 51, 81, or 101. If you're drunk on wine or if you're drunk, that is sin that should be repented of. Paul contrasts, however... This drunkenness with wine—the whole reason he teaches this is to say, rather than being full of wine or drunk on wine, Christians should be characterized as filled with the Spirit. So, how are Christians filled with the Spirit? Well, in verses 19 and 20, you find four participles. Participles are simply verbal adjectives. He uses these. He says, addressing one another in psalms and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Those are the three that he lays out in verse 19. These are pretty much all talking about songs of praise to God, including the actual psalms which were written to music. So the psalms that we read can actually be sung and they often were sung in early first century worship services. One commentary says, all three kinds of singing that Paul lays out here are forms of speaking to one another within the worshiping community. This brings out a really important point here. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that we are actually commanded to sing? Now believe me, I've heard all of the excuses. I can't sing, I don't want people to think less of me because my voice is horrible, Uh, That's just not how I express myself in worship. I don't know that song, and on and on the excuses go, and none of them are biblical. God has clearly commanded us in his word that when we gather in this room and we sing, it is not just for the people on the platform. It is for every single person in the room. So if you were here last Sunday night for a night of worship, One of the key takeaways from that worship event was that the voices in the room were heard. We were singing at the top of our lungs and not every person's voice might have been pleasing to our ears, but they were all pleasing to the Lord. And that's what matters. So if you're the worst singer in the world, come sit by me every Sunday. I don't care. You're not gonna distract me. I personally have the mentality, if I can't hear myself sing, I'm not singing. That's how my mind works. So I'm screaming out at the top of my lungs, and there might be times when I'm off pitch, flat, sharp, whatever other terms Reed can teach me. I would be off, but it doesn't matter, because you're not singing to me. You're not singing to the choir. You're not singing to Reed. You are singing to the Lord, Keith and Kristen Getty wrote a great book that focuses on congregational singing. They said this, the congregation of the church is the ultimate choir, and it is without auditions. Everyone can be in it and should be in it. Now, there are some people in church, particularly men, who think wrongly that to sing somehow makes me less manly less macho. And perhaps that's you or perhaps that what was taught to you at some point in your life. And I would just encourage you to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and read about what scripture teaches us about what it means to to be a man, to be created in the image of God, and you will see nothing in those passages that indicate that part of being a godly man is refraining from singing. It's not there. And this might mean that you have to get out of your comfort zone a little bit and start singing in the car and build yourself up to come into this room on Sunday morning and sing. But you know what biblical manhood is to me? It's sitting under the shadow of my grandfather when I was about eight years old, dressed in his Sunday suit, reeking of Old Spice aftershave, and he is belting out at the top of his lungs at Calvary. That is manhood. A man who is not ashamed to belt out at the top of his lungs, no matter what it might sound like to those that are professionally trained, that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. That is biblical manhood. That is the type of church that we want to be. Another quote from that book, it says, as we sing to God and about God together with the people of God, we reflect the truth that we were designed for community, both with God and with each other. So I hope you've noticed that there are certain times when we're singing on Sunday morning that we intentionally pull back the instruments. We're not doing that because we messed up or because something happened, it's intentional. Because we want to hear the voices in the room. That's by design. So if you're looking for a place where the only people you hear are the ones on the platform, or the only people you hear are the choir, you're not going to find that here. Because we want the voices in the room to be one of the primary reasons we gather to sing. That other participle that's used in verse 20 Paul says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you give thanks to God, guess what you're doing? You're praying. When you give thanks to God for what he has done for you, you are engaging in prayer We should be praising Him and thanking Him in these worship services for His holiness, for His righteousness, His compassion, His grace, His mercy. When Christians are full of the Spirit, their corporate gatherings will reflect who God is. And He is a gracious, merciful, compassionate God. That's how Paul ends this passage We want to be defined as people who are full of the Spirit. How do we do that? By singing out at the top of our lungs to the great God that we serve. Christians in the room, Paul is challenging all of us to live wisely and be full of the Spirit. How are you living up to those challenges that he gives us in these passages? And non-believers in the room, let me share a story with you as we close today. This is a story from someone that Ashley and I, a ministry that Ashley and I support. A woman named Carla was determined to become a suicide bomber. She hated Christians and threatened to pour boiling water on them. Carla intended to earn the favor of her God by murdering all who were not radical enough. So she planned a suicide bombing that would rock the government and kill many innocent people in a local market. The day approached for her sacrifice, but shortly before, Carla fell sick. During the night, she experienced a profound and very real dream. A man in dazzling white stood before her. His face shone as brilliantly as the sun, But she could not see past the intense light. However, she did hear a voice that said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Follow me. You will preach the gospel. When she awoke, she was greatly confused and shaken, but healed from her sickness. She knew it was Jesus who spoke to her. So she went to a Christian woman she knew, telling her about the powerful dream. The woman explained the gospel, and Carla prayed to receive Christ. She was transformed by the power of God from death unto life, made a new creation in Christ. A few days later, Jesus reappeared to her again in a second dream. He said, Carla, go and share this good news with the regional commander. She knew about that commander. He was ruthless and he led the most notorious radical group in the area, responsible for the deaths of thousands of people. She told her parents about the mission that Jesus was sending her on. They told her she was crazy and she would certainly die. She confidently responded, I was ready to die for a false religion, so I am happy and prepared to die for Jesus. How was she gonna reach that commander? She didn't know. But she just happened to run into a man who was connected to this radical group. And she asked him to take her to his headquarters. With great hesitation, he agreed. The two got on his motorcycle, not knowing what would happen. When they arrived at a camp and checkpoint, the first of four, there were about 250 fighters. She openly shared the gospel with them. She said that she was on a mission and wanted to approach their commander. They scoffed and told her she would be killed. Undeterred, she continued her long journey. Taking ten hours, she went through three more checkpoints, each with armed fighters. Before the last checkpoint, the man who had taken her refused to go any further. She was on her own and somehow made it through alive. She arrived at the headquarters. The commander strangely granted her an audience. Prepared to die, Carla explained the gospel, saying that Jesus had sent her. Jesus wants you to know that he is the way, the truth, and the life, she told him. Rather than kill her, the commander went to a table in his office, sat down, and began to weep, saying, three days ago, Jesus appeared to me in a dream. He told me that I was on a path of destruction I must change my ways. If I don't, I will be destroyed. Then he told me that a woman was going to come and tell me about the gospel. Carla was stunned and explained as best as she could that Jesus was the true and living God, that he gave his life, was raised from the dead to give all who will believe forgiveness and eternal life. The commander believed. Carla led him to the Lord. He then gave orders For all of his officers to come to the camp. Three truckloads. When they arrived, he told them the truth. That Jesus was the true and living God. Carla coordinated with a local team to show the Jesus film in the local language. Every night since, there have been showings of those segments of the Jesus film. And every night, new fighters are coming to the camp to watch and believe from Yemen, Sudan, Iran, and Turkey... All fighters given to their cause, but who instead meet Jesus. Rather than being trained to kill, they are watching Jesus every night. At last count, nearly a thousand people have given their lives to Christ and renounced terror. The commander has even had to relocate and go into hiding from other radical groups for his supposed Betrayal. You can't make this stuff up. Jesus is alive. He is working around the world. This is not fake. The stories you read about in Scripture, they happen in 2022. Jesus appears to people in dreams. They repent of their sin. They come to faith in Christ. If it can happen overseas, brothers and sisters, it can happen right here. If you are not in Christ today, turn from your sin. Believe the gospel and you can have eternal life with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people that are full of the Spirit, as Paul says in this passage. And if there are any here today that have never turned from their sin and believed in the good news of the gospel, Would you convict them today? Help them to understand that there is no way to be made right with you apart from a relationship with your son. And for those of us who are converted, may we also believe that you are still working, that you are constantly working in people's lives all around the world. May we never stop believing that you transform hearts. So we thank you For who you are and what you do for us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.